My guest today is Debbie Goodman Byatt, a serial entrepreneur, author, speaker, friend, and founder of Africa's largest executive search firm, Jack Hammer. Debbie's also a former dancer, and she shares with us her journey of moving from the world of dance to that of entrepreneurship and how she's applied the same discipline and passion that she had in dance to building a business, actually building several businesses. I am happy to welcome Debbie to our call today. Welcome, Debbie. I'm so happy that you could join me on this podcast. Great to be here. So I wanted to have a conversation with you on a couple of different levels. One, obviously, as a creative, as a dancer, uh, but as well as an entrepreneur and how you mix the best practices that you've learned in the world of dance and how you bring that into the world of entrepreneurship, knowing that a lot of our audience out there are creatives, designers, um, copywriters, and so forth, who run their own businesses and really be able to take some of the best practices that they have developed in their artwork and translate those into running a successful business for themselves. So I thought you would be the perfect person to have this conversation with. Okay, but we first need to get the facts straight. So, um, Okay, let's get the facts straight. <laughs> so I retired as a professional dancer and choreographer yes. many years ago. Okay, so um, I retired when I was about 28. And only after that did I actually go into business. So um, I haven't been in formal training and working as um, an artist, so to speak, for um, more than 20 years. Um, but nevertheless, I still do consider myself a dancer at heart. It's the thing I was always born to do. But eventually, I just got too old, too injured, and too broke to continue doing it. So um, hence, I, 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 I found business quite accidentally. Um, I'd never thought I would be an entrepreneur, but I guess I should have known because um, certainly as a dancer, there's so little support, there's so little funding that you're kind of running your own mini business all the time you're training and you're performing, but you're also promoting your own shows and you're writing your own press releases and you're sending out invitations and you're gathering audiences and you're doing all your marketing. So um, it's like, it, I guess it was like running a business every single mm -hmm. time we would, um, we would put on a production. Um, but I'd never thought of myself as, um, as an entrepreneur until I, actually, and I, until I actually retired and went into business. However, am I not mis am I mistaken that you last year or the year before you took a year off and you went on a sabbatical and and just danced? Well, um, I didn't take a full sabbatical. I did what I usually do, and that is juggle a lot of balls. Um, <laughs> I, what I did a few years ago, I've done it a couple of times in the last, say, five or six years. In 2013, 2014, I had a massive urge and craving to dance again. And so I connected with the artistic director of the dance company that I used to work with um, and said, let's let's put something together. I went back into training. So that was really hard to, to go back into training in my mid forties. 
um, having not done that for many, many years, um, in order that I could ready my body physically for the rehearsal and performance process. And so that did take up a lot of time, but I was still running the business at the same time. I didn't have the luxury of a formal sabbatical, but I was taking weeks off for rehearsal and then eventually performance. And it was, it was a wonderful experience, but it certainly reminded me how hard it is to um, just the physical toll of that level of training is something that you really need to be completely committed to if you want to be performing at that level. And I think, I think that's what um, you know, artists who are just so passionate about whatever their discipline is, um, that's what they're prepared to commit to. Um, I think the challenge comes when you're in, when you've chosen an art form that doesn't necessarily pay well, and where you're, you're really, um, I guess, sacrificing so much for your art. Um, there sometimes comes a time when you need to call it a day, and 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 I did many years ago, but it was wonderful to go to go and experience it again, not needing to earn money out of it because I certainly wasn't going to. But um, it was it was a wonderful experience. Was it closure for you to be able to go back and do it again, or? What was besides no. the urge to wanting to do it? <laughs> no, no, I consider okay. dance like a bit like a malaria bug. Every so often, <laughs> it, it comes back to haunt me. So it's a it's like a virus that's kind of there, and it gets it's an itch that gets scratched, and then it goes away for a bit, and it'll be wonderful and lovely and and dormant, and then a few years later, it'll come back and go. We need to dance now, and mm-hmm. so actually. Um, uh, last year, in fact, I spent a wonderful few days with my um, my former dance partner and artistic director back in South Africa, um, working on some contact improvisation, and we produced a beautiful, um, a beautiful little video actually um, that was just wonderful because it wasn't hours and hours of rehearsal, um, and and my itch got scratched. And now I'm good for the time being. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Until it resurfaces. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you have not been cured. It will come back at some point. Most likely. Um, I think, though, that um, it's, I've, you know, a lot of people when I retired and I started going to working in a formal job, meaning a job where you got paid a salary at the end of the month regardless of what happened. It was like, oh my goodness, I get a paycheck every month. (laughs) I mean, it was a ridiculously small amount of money at the time, but it was so much compared to what I'd been used to. And so um, when I, when I start, when I, uh, went into, um, into an office environment, um, a lot of my peers were looking at me as if I'd been like a traitor to my art. Mm. And as if I had, um, if I'd given up the the passion and the illusion of um, of of a life as an artist, and I I felt really bad at uh, for a while, um, but then I realized, and what I try to explain to a lot of people that I actually find business exceptionally creative, and um, and I think that there's there are a lucky few people, particularly artists, who are able to channel their creativity. Um, the same kind of creativity that you use when you're creating an artwork or a music piece, it's a similar kind of process, a similar kind of mental process, a similar, similar kind of discipline to, um, to create a business plan, to look at a marketing strategy, to figure out a new market, to design a process. 
it's it's really very a very similar creative um, creative process. And so I, you know, I don't find that I have any lack of access to creative outlet being in business. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, for me, there's nothing more pleasurable than being able to sit there with a spreadsheet and figure, figuring out gross margins <laughs> <laughs> and, and revenue streams. It's uh, wow, this is this is super because. Um, you know, when you're when you're an artist, what you're essentially doing is you're creating something out of nothing, and there's just an absolute magic to that. Um, if you're fortunate enough to be an entrepreneur, you do exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's different, I guess, if you've just got a job and you're told what to do. But as an entrepreneur, you get to think up ideas and then make stuff happen, and you can do that every single day. Um, so I've, I've not ever found that my creative um, spirit or engagement um, was, um, was suffocated in any way, um, shifting from art into or from the arts into, into the world of, of business. That's a beautiful statement in terms of how you've married the two of them together. And I think a lot of the people who are going to be listening to this uh, podcast whether they're working full-time at a design firm or an ad agency, many of whom are still freelancing and they're still running a side gig. So to be able to really recognize uh, you know, that side business that they are running, that that same passion and that same drive that they have for creating the art, they can channel that in terms of creating their businesses. So very yeah. beautiful. Yeah. I, mean, I think that actually artists are just perfect for entrepreneurship because as an artist, you've always got to have at least one side hustle. You've, yeah. you've got one side hustle, maybe two side hustles. Um, in business, you're juggling a lot of balls, particularly if you're creating something new. If you've got a little startup, it's not necessarily something that's making money. You've got to have some other revenue streams. That's the life that we know. That's the, mm-hmm. that's the world of, of the arts. Um, it's uh, Unless you've made it big and there are only a very small number who, who do, um, for many of us in the arts, we are doing a lot of different things at the same time. And that's an incredible, incredible discipline. Um, I think the other thing that I found very fortunate for myself was that um, because I'd known what it was to be to feel really passionate about something, I was able to identify my passion for something else. Whereas I encounter people in the world who've never ever had an experience of feeling so so in love with the work that they do that they mm. don't know how to access it. And so I think artists are at a huge advantage when it comes to that. They just already tapped in to that absolute love and commitment and energy that they feel for something that they've got a calling towards. And love, commitment, and the, just tapping into their emotion, into their inner core of what is the driver is so critical. You're right. And there's some people who just go through life without ever having recognized that and ever having felt that. Yeah. I mean, I think Mm. that, um, you know, Mm. for some artists, when it comes to having to do the business stuff, it's a schlep. It's a pain in the butt. It's it's not something that they feel comfortable with. Um, But I think there's a different perspective to be had and to say, okay, this is actually a new challenge. It's like learning a new piece to play. It's like uh, choreographing a new new work and and you don't get it right the first time. I mean, we are so willing to be um, to work and rehearse and and practice and do things over and over and over so that we can get really good at our art form. Then when it comes to, you know, 
paying accounts and uh, getting used Reading to Reading that spreadsheet. <laughs> exactly. Um, maybe it's not something that we're utterly in love with, but just if mm -hmm. you think about just applying the same level or even some level of that tenacity and willingness to do it over and over again so you can get really good at it, um, that's just another way of, of getting around the, the tasks that one needs to do in order to also be a successful artist. There's got to mm -hmm. be some level of, of business acumen applied to your um, applied to your art form in order to progress. Absolutely. Very well said. So I think this is a great lesson for a lot of people out there who can't reconcile the two of them together. Another thing I wanted you to kind of expand upon, because I've heard you speak about this topic before, and that is mindfulness and mindfulness in business and just mindfulness that you can just bring to the table in everything that you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you came about writing your book uh, on the topic? Yeah, so um, I had um, gotten to a point uh, several years ago, maybe seven seven years ago, where you know I speak about juggling the balls. I think that there just were too many balls in the air all at the same time, and I was putting on a really great show of being perfect at everything, and really inside feeling not particularly um, happy about life in general. It was just too much and too much stress. Um, and I think, you know, as a, as a performer, you're used to doing the show. What people mm -hmm. see on the outside is definitely not what's going on in the inside. And so I needed to find a tool that I could use to, um, to really be present and to try and cut through the, the monkey mind, the, the thoughts that would plague me, the emotions that would be all over the show. And I found mindfulness technique to really be extremely helpful. And it's, you know, become something that's um, extremely um, commonplace these days. And um, certainly um, now, I mean, one, one could just download an app and get hooked straight into um, any kind of uh, meditation or mindfulness-based uh, mindfulness based, uh, uh, meditation technique. So um, I used that initial for myself and I found that it was very helpful in um, in reducing my stress and anxiety and really helping me to become very present and then I um, but I found that I was um, mostly able to do that when I was in a meditation process when I was actually on the cushion so to speak and I was trying to find ways to incorporate that in my daily life and so I developed a like a ritual a daily practice that I actually introduced to my team and they started practicing with me um, it on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, a couple of years into this, uh, this little daily practice of ours, I realized that it had started to have some quite significant impact on mm. um, on our team culture, actually. Um, people who ha had started to become more self-aware, which is one of the great things about mindfulness. And, um, and then they had started to um, become more empathetic to their peers. And so that, that really impacted team culture in a wonderful way. And so I then uh, documented all of this and wrote a book called In the Flow, Taking Mindfulness to Work. And um, seven years later, it's still a practice that my team uses on a daily basis. And it's become our key way to stay connected as a connected and um, compassionate and trusting and respectful of, um, of one another. So, um, I mean, I think that my, my team has just got the most extraordinary culture and, and way of working together. And part of it is due to this mindfulness-based technique. Beautiful. Is there a possibly a couple of things you can share with the audience so that they could do that at practice for their own businesses? Yeah, sure. So um, one of the things that um, that we do is on a daily basis, um, there's um, a 
an email that goes out to the team as a prompt to say, what was yesterday's best thing? And share something um, that you're grateful for. And so each day, um, each individual in the team is doing a little bit of introspection in order to find the perfect, beautiful moments of their lives that they would like to share with their with their peers. Um, that gets sent back to an administrator who collates um, each person's moment um, and then sends that out in, in a almost like we call it the in the flow report. And at some point in the day, every person in the team gets this in the flow report, and it's a wonderful way to just stay read what's going on for everybody else in the team. This works well for pe for teams up to about a size twenty. Um, more yeah. than that, it's a bit unwieldy, um, but it's a very simple tool. These days, there are lots of apps and fancy gizmos that one can use, but just plain old email will be perfect um, as partly a self. Uh, self-awareness and introspection, finding the beautiful, special, ordinary moments that are really important that we sometimes miss. So mm -hmm. that element of mindfulness and then the opportunity to share that with peers is a wonderful way to stay connected in a very authentic whole way because we share personal stuff, we share family stuff. Um, there's some, some bits of work that gets in there as well. But when this happens regularly on a daily basis over many months and in our case, many years, um, people who work remotely in particular have just found an, a wonderful way of staying connected. So the cohesiveness as a group and the culture of the of the team has really amplified because of this particular particular technique, the tool that we use. Love it, love it. It's um, I think we we take gratitude and just uh, recognizing all the good things around us um, for granted sometimes, and just to be able to vocalize it. It's so important. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We have a Slack channel here for at Artisan for our A-team. Uh, so we have a gratitude Slack channel that everybody every day uh, gets to put in what they're grateful for. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's really nice to be able to see all of that for the whole team on a uh, daily basis. Yeah. And to your point, sometimes it's business and sometimes it's personal mm -hmm. and you know, the yeah. two are so integrated anyway. So. Yeah. I mean, I've shared this and people have uh, given me feedback who've read the book and you, and um, adapted some of the practices that I've shared from all over the world. And so it's really gratifying to see that, um, you know, it's not just my little team and, you know, in South Africa <laughs> that's, um, that's doing this. There are companies all over the world that are, that are incorporating these ideas. And once again, it's not just from, uh, from my side. I mean, I, I use some of these ideas. I took some of these ideas from wonderful podcasts and TED Talks and books that I'd read. And so there's so much of this out there in the world already. Um, and so, um, so yeah, it's, a, it's so easy to just pick it up and, and start. Um, I think if, if, there's a, if, if there are toxic team cultures, I think it'd probably fall on deaf ears. But for the most part, it's a yeah. really great way to connect. Yeah, I love it. It's beautiful. Um, I wanted to go back to something that you had shared uh, a few moments ago about when you first decided to walk away from dance and go into the business sector uh, and some of the reactions of your fellow dancers. And I want to talk about that specifically because obviously here at Artisan, we work with artists um, and creatives. And sometimes the public public perception, public feedback um, that is, you know, it can impact a creative in some ways. How did you, 
how did you handle the criticism or that feedback? How did you channel that into creating success for yourself? And can you just talk a little bit about just criticism as a, for a creative as a whole? How did that impact you? So criticism as a creative, oh my goodness, every time you you create something new, you've birthed a new baby. And so anytime <laughs> that people don't like yeah. don't like what they see, um, it feels like somebody's telling me you that your baby's ugly. Um, <laughs> so, so it's really hard. No matter how often you do it, it's it comes from your soul and you put it out in the world. It's hard to hear the the, the criticism, but it's something that every single artist has to get used to because there are going to be the haters. And just because you love it doesn't mean other people will too. So there's that element. Um, and I think most people who have been at it for a while will have developed a resilience towards um, towards criticism. And um, But there was something interesting that just that happened when I decided to call it quits. Um, I'm... I'd always thought that I would be a dancer choreographer for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. It was the only thing I'd ever wanted to do since I was six years old. And then all of a sudden the day came when I decided I was out. And the astonishment um, as well as almost the um, the – people really made me feel like I had been a traitor to my art, that I wasn't, mm-hmm. that I wasn't willing to sacrifice enough and that I had, um, I had shunned the artistic community in a way. And it was, it came as a surprise. I didn't realize that, um, that, that that would be a, a reaction from people. I thought people would be like really excited and happy for me that I decided to try something else. Um, but, and it wasn't everybody, of course, but people were like, oh, my goodness, you're doing that? You're going into an mm. office? You've got a job? As if it was like I had decided to, um, you know, become a bank robber. It was, <laughs> um, it was, it was really astonishing. And I, I, I couldn't quite make head or tail of it. But um, I, also, I just had to reconcile for myself that I had absolutely loved passionately my my art for so many years, and then had decided that um, that it was time, and it was time because I was um, starting to feel resentful of um, being broke all the time, of being injured uh. all the time, and of not being able to um, not being able to stretch my horizons. And, um, and, you know, there are those who would say, well, you didn't work hard enough or you didn't try hard enough or whatever. And like with anything, you just got to get over that and, and move on. And so, um, so the first little while was, was quite hard and I was almost ashamed. I had like this shame and guilt about the, the fact that I'd taken mm. a job that paid me a salary at the ever, end of every month. Like, how dare I do that? Um, but, um, yeah, I got over it. <laughs> Yes, the romanticized notion of the starving artist. Well, that's it, you that, know. Yeah. It, it, it's, and, and it remains one of the things that of all my accomplishments and achieve, achievements that I've had over the years, when I tell people that I used to be a dancer, that that's the thing that they're most excited about. Mm. And um, there is that wonderfully romantic idea about the artist that is this alluring um, sort of being. Um, but, you know, we've also got to pay the bills at, every, at the end of every month. Mm-hmm. But how beautiful that you take that same passion and have channeled that into creating opportunities for other people. You run a very successful recruitment agency in South Africa, and you've taken that 
passion and your business and your staff is able to create life-changing opportunities for other people. I can't think of anything else more beautiful than that. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's wonderful that the that the work has a has a positive um, influence on people's lives. That's um, that's wonderful. I think for me, um, probably the thing that I'm most proud of in my work, my my world of work, is creating a work environment that is just the best place for working parents to be, because. Mm. Um, because I really have um, have have co-created with my team a space where people can be extraordinarily successful in their careers, together with being the kinds of parents that they want to be. And so, particularly for working moms, it's like nobody ever needs to apologize for the fact that they have a kid or a gala to go to or a, um, a year-end Christmas show or first day of school. It's you know we're just like fantastic. Go for it. Send pictures. Enjoy. Um, so. Um, so I think that that's one of my, if I think of of, of the creative impulse, yes, the it, the work itself. I run a, a very successful executive search firm. It's one of it's one of the largest in Africa. All of those things are lovely, but um, uh, what's even even more um, that really makes me feel really good is that it's an amazing place for people to work. I love that. Uh, that's actually, I think, what a big driver for us here at Artisan Two. And the reason why we went virtual as a company, we went remote about 10 years ago. I had two of my team members came up at the same day, mind you, to say they were pregnant. And that, you know, once they came back from maternity leave, they wanted to work from home. And I I think you're absolutely right, right on point. There's nothing better than being able to have this integrated life work thing where you can take time off and go drop off your child at school and come back and still be very, very productive and very, very successful and still go back and pick them up from school. Yeah. The most productive people in the world are working moms. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So going back to kind of channeling that energy into this creative entrepreneurship and, you know, constantly always looking for the next fabulous thing, the next way of creating impact. I know you are in the process of launching yet another startup. Uh, You have a second business in addition to uh, the executive search firm. You're an author, you speak, you're a mom, all of those, all of those balls in the air that you're juggling so beautifully. What drives you to continually create in business? Hmm. Um, first of all, just to those balls that are in the air, they're not always in sync. And, um, and so I'm very, I'm very mindful of making sure that people don't believe the illusion of, of what one, you know, I think that there's a lot of pressure on, um, on women to make it all look perfect. And frankly, it's not. There are days mm-hmm. when it's actually awful. Um, and there are days when things don't work out at all. And um, there are days when um, I wonder why on earth I chose to do all of this. Um, so it may look like the, 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 like everything is working perfectly and elegantly, but don't believe that illusion. Some of the time, momentarily. <laughs> uh, most of the time, there's a lot of duck peddling underneath. But, um, but what drives me? Um, so 
I, you know, I'm a, I'm a very typical entrepreneur, visionary personality. I'm in my zone when I'm in a creative space. And so I love, I just love creating new things. It's why would I continue to, you know, if I had to do, if I compare this to, um, to the process of creating a dance work, I love the first two weeks of choreography where you're getting all the ideas and the new movement vocabulary and you're figuring things out and the inspiration is there. And then after that, you're in rehearsal. And now you're just rehearsing over and over and over to make it look good and get everything in sync and make sure it's on the right beat and everybody's in sync with each other. That that drives me nuts. So, um, so I'm great <laughs> at the new ideas phase. And then somebody else really needs to be there to be the rehearsal master to make sure that all the execution is happening and making sure that all the legs are being kicked at the right angle at the right time on the right beat, because that is not my happy place. So, um, so yeah, it's just, it's just my, my personality. I, I love, um, I, I, I love new ideas and I love trying things out and not all of them work um, in the process of getting to this uh, this new startup i think i had maybe 20 ideas that were super awful um and <laughs> like i did the i did the spreadsheet i did the financial model i put the thing together did the numbers and then we realized oh no this is this is terrible this is not going to go anyway so it's just like any other creation mm. you've got to keep trying and then sometimes you you know you just got to throw it away because it's it's bad it's not going to work um so for me, the endeavor is what, what excites me. And um, it's lovely when you can actually go, okay, great. This is getting some sparks and it's, uh, it's got potential. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think that's probably the thing that I'll, I will always do throughout my life will be, um, will be to find new things to, um, to imagine and then to give life to. Lovely. So that brings me to two questions for you. One one, knowing that you are a mom of two daughters, what do you show them? What do they see when you are challenged with or you're saying, okay, this isn't working, throwing it out, starting again? How much do you involve them in kind of recognizing that, you know, it isn't always perfect and you don't have to have this perfect persona out there? Yeah, I mean, I think this is not just about the, the 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 projects that don't work or don't see the light of day. Um, I think it's just also around the way that, um, uh, you know, that one I've raised my my girls is to recognize that um, I'm I'm their mom. I absolutely love and adore them. I'd like to be there every time they do anything important at school or sport or whatever, but I've got a whole bunch of other things going on as well. And, um, and to be the best person and happiest person that I can be, it means that I've also got to have a bit of me and, um, and they totally get that. So mm -hmm. they, they, I had one day when, <laughs> when my, I think she was maybe five or six said to me, you know, mom, all the other kids have their mom come and fetch them from school. And I was like, okay, you're going to mm. try that guilt trip once, my baby. But, um, <laughs> but that's, <laughs> it. that's it. So, um, so yeah, they just, they just have grown up knowing that, um, that I am their mom and I do 
as much as I can for them. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that I've also going, have going on. Um, and they sometimes see the, the, the end result of that. They're now old enough to read, to read my books and to read my blogs and to know what, um, to know about the work that I do. And that's interesting and exciting to them. And it's, I think I'm a good role model for them. Um, and then I also, I think they also see me when I'm tired and ratty and not feeling particularly accomplished. And that's also good for them to see. So I, mm -hmm. I want to make sure that they don't aspire to perfection whatsoever and that they learn grit and resilience and, um, and that they know that it's okay to fail and just pick yourself up, start all over again. Yep. Exactly, because there is no such thing as perfection out there anyway. The pursuit of perfection, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, perfection is just a waste of time. <laughs> the other thing that came up um, as you were talking uh, was, you know, you mentioned that you're a visionary and you get excited and passionate about those first couple of weeks and then someone else steps in to help you implement so question for you in terms of hiring, how do you, and, and you talked about the great team that you have uh, surrounding you, how do you go about hiring? What is it that you look for in the people that you surround yourself with in business and any hiring tips that you can share with others out there who may be listening to this and getting inspired about improving their culture at their, at their offices? Mm. So um, I... I used to think that I was really great at hiring on gut feel. Um, anybody who thinks that they're great at hiring on gut feel is just being really lucky. Um, I think that every every I think everybody's hiring process will be significantly improved if you can include some some structure and process around it. And so um, I have been very fortunate in hiring. Um, in my hiring techniques and strategies, obviously, I, I go through a structured process of figuring out whether the people that I'm hiring to do a particular job, are they actually going to be able to do that job? And so I'll, I'll share with you some techniques on how to do that now. Um, but it's more the fit that's the trickier part. And, um, and part of um, figuring out, is somebody going to be a good fit? Are they going to be a good culture match for your team or for your business? Is, um, you know, people say, well, how am I going to know if they're going to fit? The first question is, well, they've got to fit into something. So mm -hmm. first of all, you need to know what your something actually is. So what is your culture? How do you do things around here? Um, how do you roll? We talk about values and sometimes people um, uh, mistake those for, you know, these lovely words like integrity and respect and creativity, whatever those are. But it's really about how are those, um, how are those values actually um, evidenced in behavior and mindset? So we say that we stand for X, Y, or Z, but how is that demonstrated in the way that we behave and the way that we think, the way mm -hmm. that we treat each other, the way that we relate to our people, et cetera. And so being able to articulate how we do things around here is essentially an articulation of culture. And so when you're talking about how we're going to figure out if somebody's going to be able to fit with our culture, it's much less about chemistry and vibe and, oh, I really like this person, and more about being able to figure out how does this person operate? Um, are they going to be a good uh, fit in terms of the way in which they, they, their, their behaviors 
and the way in which they they think. And so being able to um, figure out some good interview questions that will help you identify that um, is, is really key. And it does take a little bit of work. Um, figuring that out, first of all, figuring out your, your values and then what are the behaviors and mindsets and then how are we going to ask, what kinds of questions do we need to ask in order to figure that out is not something that you can just snap your fingers and all of a sudden it's going to be there. It actually is work. But if you can, if you can develop that kind of structure, you've got a template for yourself. Mm-hmm. Every single time you hire, you can use that same template over and over. Um, when it comes to can this person do the job, um, I think people revert mostly to what kinds of skills and experience am I looking for? Now, I'm not saying, I do believe that the best predictor of future success is past success. So you're ideally looking for somebody who's demonstrated some of the skills and experience that you're looking for in the past. But the way that I like to, to look at it is make a list of what kind of work does this person need to do? And what outcomes and results are we looking for in our business? And then apply your interview questions in order to figure out, can they do the work and will they be able to achieve those outcomes? So um, I go into that in a lot more detail. I've got my new book coming out inside the interview. It really digs into that. Um, uh, but but those would be sort of some key pointers on how to really make sure that you're doing a good job of, um, of assessing potential talent. Lovely. And I know that you are on the speaking circuit speaking about some of these best practices as well as still speaking about in the flow best practices. So thank you for thank you for that. And thank you for giving us a little taste as to what the book is all about. Yeah, thanks. It's um, at the editors. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how, what emerges yes. after they're done with it. <laughs> When uh, when do you expect it to be um, out in? Um, probably printed? a month or so. Maybe, okay. Yeah, maybe by the end of February, March. It's hopefully depends how depends how much red. Good, good, good luck. <laughs> yeah, thank you. If uh, people are looking for you and they want to read some of your blogs and find you, where would be the best place for them to go? Um, my personal website is debbiegoodmanbyit.com, um, which is okay. tricky to spell. Um, I will have it in the show notes so <laughs> yeah. everybody can spell it. So that's my personal website. And then from there, you can get to all the other, all the other businesses, Jackhammer and Virtual Coaching Partners and Hiresmiths are all interlinked with that. Fabulous. Is there anything additional that you wanted to share with uh, the artists, the artisans who are going to be listening to this? Um, any day that you're questioning your sanity about why you're doing what you do, just turn that around and know that you're the luckiest person for having this passion and having a talent that so many other people in the world just wish that they had. And so turning that inward and just feeling real, real gratitude and love and specialness for this m- magnificent talent that you get an opportunity to practice every day is what I'd say. Wow. Beautiful. That's magic. Great. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was lovely. Yeah, it was wonderful. That was Debbie Goodman Byatt. You can find Debbie online at Debbie Goodman Byatt. Link and additional information will be in the show notes, as well as information about her current book, In the Flow, and her upcoming title, Inside the Interview, both of which can be found on her website. 
Additionally, Debbie's interview serves as a transition episode for the Artisan Podcast into the second season of our show, where we focus on best practices for hiring creatives, reviewing core values and culture fit, and sharing interviewing best practices no matter which side of the interview desk you are sitting at. I hope you will join us. Thank you for listening to the Artisan Podcast.